This is a CBC podcast. 6:31 p.m. Monday, June 24th, 2019. We're pulling up behind the vehicle. It's got big, big uh, fur tuck in it. This is the moment the police end their grand deception. The trick they've been playing on Greg Furtuck is over. Greg is out on the road near Saskatoon. He's with undercover officers who he thinks are his friends. But officers in uniform are not far behind. The police spent 10 months lying to Greg, and they also spent nearly $700,000 building a fake world just for him. Greg Furtuck, you were under arrest for the murder of Sherry Furtuck. Get out of the vehicle. At times, the narrative directed by police seems like it follows a movie script. And this is a plot that's full of twists and turns. They claim that they're looking only for the truth. Well, the police lied, and I think that the accused lied throughout. And so what is the truth? I don't want to talk to you no more. Okay. Last thing. Saying a word. So you understand that you don't have to say anything? No, I'm not saying a word. I need to go back again. There's um, some spots that were kind of made of importance that maybe, yeah, haven't been searched. I'm Alicia Bridges. I'm Kendall Latimer. And this is episode 12 of The Pit. There's a cold chill in the air, and the leaves have started to fall. A new season and a new phase of Greg Furtuck's murder trial. It's now week five. The undercover officers are starting to tell their story. And Sherry's sister, Michelle Kish, has come to watch. It was hard to decide when to come, of course. I couldn't come for the the entire uh, trial. But I, I came this week in hopes of listening in on the testimonies of the uh, undercover officers that were involved in the sting operation. The undercover cops lay out every interaction they had with Greg and reveal their double lives. It's unbelievable what they have to do, and I really appreciate that, that they would do this for our sister. Sherry's been missing for almost six years. And Michelle hasn't seen Greg for about 10. So I, I didn't know what he looked at, like at this point, I mean, except for what, you know, my sisters told me. So I, I didn't know, like, was, were we going to make eye contact or, you know, and, and then realizing how close we actually were sitting to him. And yeah, I got the stare down, well, pretty much every day that I walk in court, he's, he stares. Sometimes I stare back, sometimes I just don't. But it's just, it, you know... You see him there like that, in the shackles and everything, and I just think, how sad. Like, his life could have been so much better. And here he is. Greg watches closely from the prisoner's box as the undercover officers testify. We can't tell you their names, but they're the ones who pretended to be his friends and his co-workers for almost a year. And later we learn that Greg saw them as family. Every interaction the police had with Greg is called a scenario. 
the police run more than 100 scenarios during the sting. They range from Christmas celebrations to the crime boss confession. Just a quick reminder before we tell you more. None of the evidence we are going to talk about has been accepted by the judge. Justice Richard Daniluk still needs to decide if any of it will be admissible. The Crown starts right at the beginning. Police watch Greg for weeks to learn his habits. They see him visit the same liquor store every day. So that's where they rope him in. This is Saskatoon Morning. We are hearing how murder suspect Greg Furtuck was tricked into taking his first steps into a Mr. Big sting. They get him to enter a contest in September 2018, and they make sure he wins. The prize is a free trip to Canmore for Greg and his girlfriend Doris. They meet the other contest winners in Alberta. All of them are undercover cops. The officer who made the initial contact is testifying at Furtuck's first-degree murder trial. The officer testified about training for years on how to build trust and rapport with a suspect. One of the officers has a mission to bond with Greg. In Greg's case, that meant talking about hunting and fishing and laughing along with Furtuck's crude sense of humour. He needs to make Greg curious about his job. The police want Greg to work for his fictitious company. The officer plays the role of a regional supervisor for a busy transportation business. Another undercover cop plays the role of the officer's daughter, and her job is to befriend Doris. It works. They all end up getting along. Back in Saskatoon, they all go for dinner. Greg arrives dressed in black, including his cowboy hat. He asks to join the company, and the officers say yes. They pay Greg 20 bucks an hour. He's paired up with a younger guy, and they work together to transport vehicles between cities. Greg told us about this before, when we interviewed him at the jail after his arrest. He told us a little bit about his time with the undercover police. Well, we used to go out, uh, pick up cars. I thought that was sort of a little funny, because you pick up a car and, hey, and bring it back to Saskatoon to a car lot. And, and I always wondered why didn't they just drive it uh, from Hay to Saskatoon? Why did we have to go pick it up? But I didn't ask any questions. Greg seems to like the work, especially the social aspect of it. Yeah, we always go for supper after anyways, you know, after work. Keg, Manos, Clark's Crossing, different places. They say he was comfortable hanging out. With the cops, Greg is outgoing and loud. But he's also misogynistic. He makes a waitress cry with his crude remarks. Soon, Greg is let in on a secret. His colleagues reveal the criminal side of the business. It pays more, and Greg seems to embrace the underbelly. He refers to himself as the bad rascal and the dark cowboy. Greg and the undercover police officers travel around. Some of the trips take Greg across Western Canada, dealing with black market cigarettes, fake passports, diamonds, and handguns. They have connections with a corrupt police officer and a border guard. As Greg spends more time with the group, there's a growing problem, his drinking. The undercover cops say they tried to talk him into slowing down, but he doesn't. 
Greg drinks so much that he loses track of time and hurts himself. One night, he's working a high-stakes poker game in a warehouse. Greg passes out. When he wakes up, he sort of staggers to the foosball table and pees his pants. And then he falls down the stairs. The situation gets so bad that the police shut down the scenario and call it a night. Police have to tread carefully when they're interacting with Greg, even more now than, say, a decade ago. A Supreme Court ruling in 2014 put new rules in place for how the courts handle Mr. Big Stings. It's known as the Hart Ruling, and its goal is to make sure police can't use evidence obtained through abusive methods or prey on vulnerabilities like a person's addictions or low mental capacity. The police on the Furtuck case spend a considerable amount of time trying to show that they played by the rules. They introduce Greg to sober co-workers to show that he doesn't need to drink. They take him to elaborate retirement parties to show that people can leave the company without repercussions. They also fire a guy in front of Greg to show that even if you screw up, they won't hurt you, they'll just let you go. The officers who targeted Greg say Mr. Big Stings are needed to solve cold cases. They deny that the goal is to get a confession and say they just want the truth, to find out if the person was involved in the crime. They say targets in other stings can and have gone free by maintaining their innocence or not talking at all. As the Mr. Big evidence against Greg is revealed in court, Greg's lawyer, Morris Bodner, speaks outside against the operations. He thinks the technique should be banned in Canada. I don't think it's good. And yet there's a purpose for it. They do solve some good cases. But gee whiz, they're catching the wrong people at times. What is the truth here? They claim that they're looking only for the truth. Well, the police lies throughout in this as well. And I think that the accused lied throughout. And so what is the truth? and you try to get to the truth through uh, physical evidence. Well, the physical evidence isn't there either. So we'll have to wait and see. It's all up to the judge. Morris tells reporters something more, that he warned Greg not to fall for the sting. I told them that they're going to try to do a Mr. Big on him. And when I talked to him more recently, I said, I told you not to talk to them, and he doesn't even remember being in my office. Regardless, Greg obviously took the bait. And Morris says the evidence gathered in the sting shows that Greg was really vulnerable and actually taken advantage of by the RCMP. That a very sophisticated organization is dealing with a person who has a major alcohol problem, and then on top of that had major... Uh, a major injury, causing uh, memory loss, etc. He's talking about Greg's head injury from when he slipped outside the neighborhood pub in January. I guess we were at Crocs Crossing and I just stepped on the top step and it was icy. I slipped backwards and hit the bottom step with the back of my head. So This happens right in the middle of the Mr. Big Sting. And it's the undercover police who get Greg medical attention, even though he doesn't want it. 
After Greg falls, his girlfriend Doris is so worried about Greg that she calls their new friends for help. When the undercover officers arrive, Greg is lying on the floor. He looks bloated and gray. Greg threatens the undercover officers. He says that if they call an ambulance, he'll never talk to them again. If Greg cuts the officers out of his life, it's game over for their investigation. But they call for help anyway. And later on, Greg seems to forgive them. They visit him several times in the hospital as he recovers, keeping up the appearance of caring co-workers. They learn Greg had multiple brain bleeds, nerve damage, and some memory loss. I don't remember much that I said after my accident, but I don't remember anything. I actually went on a holiday to Canmore, and I don't even remember nothing about the holiday. That's the holiday that kicked off this entire undercover operation. While Greg is in hospital, the sting is basically on hold. The cops tell Greg, work will always be there if you're ever up for coming back. A few weeks later, he returns to work. The police claim Greg was the healthiest they had ever seen. See, after I got out of the hospital, I quit drinking. You know, <laughs> When I slipped and fell on, on the ice there, that was partly due to the fact that I was drinking. So. But they admit they never saw his medical records. Greg meets a lot of undercover officers. They act out secondary storylines. It's all part of the ruse. One subplot features a couple. Of course, it's two undercover cops pretending to date. And the relationship is shown to be toxic and abusive. The guy is a co-worker of Greg's who breaks his sobriety for this girlfriend. The girlfriend is shown to act clingy and dramatic. At one point, she kicks her boyfriend out of their car. Greg tells his co-worker that if he was in that situation, he would hit the woman so hard it would put her in a coma. It's May when this plot reaches its climax. The boyfriend goes too far. This one guy killed his girlfriend. It all seems real to Greg. And I know he had blood all over him, scratches on his face. He and his co-worker are called in to help. So is the cleanup guy. He's the character who can make evidence disappear. This guy, sort of like cleanup guy, come in and got rid of everything. They just they sort of covered it up, covered it all up, and then his face was all scratched up. And that was all well. If they, they find the girl, they're gonna get DNA from her fingernails because you could see his face was all scratched up. And they said, "Don't worry, they'll never find her or something." So I didn't ask no more. I said, I better not ask no more. <laughs> we hear in court that Greg is actually really helpful in covering up the crime, and he also helps create an alibi for this guy. Greg gets in deeper with his colleagues, the undercover cops. They're still transporting cars and contraband. Sometimes the undercover officers stop by Greg's just to see his home renovations. They've been talking a lot about an upcoming trip. It's a high-stakes poker event in Montreal. They say guys who work the event get paid a ton of money, and in June they tell Greg that he's one of the lucky guys because they want him to work it. As Greg is getting excited for this trip, he's also dealing with another issue. The police want to question him about Sherry's disappearance, again. From Greg's perspective, he walked free in 2017, but now the cops are back on his doorstep. Not the undercover ones, but police in uniform. This is all intentional, concocted by the RCMP, to make Greg feel like the police are onto him again. 
Greg is at the airport, ready for Montreal. And then the phone rings. The crime boss is in Saskatoon, and he wants to see Greg. He's waiting for him at one of the city's nicest hotels. There are cameras and recorders hidden throughout the room. And when he and his co-workers arrive, the boss is mad. He says he should be in Montreal, but instead, he's worrying about his criminal empire, that it could come crashing down. Because of Greg. The boss scolds Greg's co-workers for not doing a proper background check. He says they should have known Greg is still suspected of murder and sends them out of the room. Greg tells the boss he feels like his co-workers are his family. Greg sits on the couch, resting his hand on his walking stick. He's wearing a wrinkled white button-down shirt and a ball cap. The boss tells Greg he can leave if he wants to, but Greg wants to talk. At that time, I was married, but when I got called into the hotel room, he reminded you of a crime boss. That's what he reminded you of. <laughs> and he said I cost him a bunch of money because the cops were looking into me. I didn't know what he was talking about, but... And, and then I seen the cleanup guy, so that's when I started. I got worried for my safety, and I was being intimidated anyways, so hindsight being what it is when I was in the hotel room I just walked out I, I got intimidated and I was afraid for my life. The boss says Greg can be fired or tell the truth. Greg needs to explain what the police want but before they get to that the boss starts building a relationship with Greg. He shares his own backstory. It's a cliche script showing his path from foster care to crime boss. Then Greg talks about his own career, and Greg tells the boss that his top quality is honesty. The conversation always comes back to the truth. Several times, the boss tells Greg not to lie. Greg insists he won't. Greg promises to tell the boss exactly what happened. The boss says he knows what police have on Greg, so Greg better not bullshit him. The boss needs to know the details of the crime so they can clean up any evidence that could be traced back to Greg. They shake hands in agreement and Greg says, I ended up shooting Sherry, and that's just between you and me. Greg says he was waiting for Sherry at the pit that afternoon, maybe around three o'clock. He's basically hiding when she arrives. He parks his truck in a spot so she can't see him right away. He says he wanted to talk about money, Greg says Sherry threatened to take him for everything he had, saying she would take him to the cleaners. Greg tells the boss that's when he sort of snapped. So he heads to his truck to grab the gun. The crime boss wants Greg to show him what happened. They both stand up. The boss is pretending to be Sherry. Greg holds his walking stick with his two hands and holds it up like a rifle and they role-play the killing, with the boss acting as Sherry. Greg says Sherry sees him with the gun and says, what do you think you're doing with that? He says something like, I'll show you. And he shoots her in the shoulder. She says, oh my God, and she falls. Now the crime boss is on his knees. Greg walks behind him, holding his prop rifle and shoots again from behind pressing his finger into the back of the boss's head to show where he fires the second shot. Greg says he didn't pick up the two shell casings. 
The boss tells Greg he better not be playing games. But Greg says this is the honest truth, that he's actually sorry he killed his wife. Greg says he wrapped her body in black plastic and then left it in some trees not too far from the pit. Then he drove back to the car wash, passing through Clavette on the way back. The boss hands Greg an RCMP memo. It shows that the police have access to new information that will lead them to Sherry's remains. It's completely fake, but Greg doesn't know that. The boss uses it to create a sense of urgency. He says they must find Sherry's remains and get rid of them before the police get there. The big boss told him to go with him and find the body or whatever. But there was no body to find because I made it up. We drove around the country road, went through some bushes, and that's about it. Outside court, Greg's lawyer says he's not surprised Greg came up with a story to avoid being fired. He really liked the group and would get paid for that Montreal trip. About uh, seventy to $100,000 in a trip to Montreal that was promised, that's what he has to gain. And he liked the, the group, as you can tell. He loved it. They paid him for doing nothing. Months before the crime boss scenario, while Greg is working with the undercover officers, he tells them he wants to kill a man. He is a mistress in Saskatoon and wants to kill her lover. Greg also tells them that he beat up a prostitute in Saskatoon, and later that he stabbed a man in B.C., maybe killed him too. The police scramble behind the scenes to investigate these stories. They try to warn the man who Greg wants to kill. But they say they can't find any evidence of these people existing. The stories from inside the Mr. Big Sting are sometimes unbelievable and outright bizarre. But there's drama in the courtroom, too. Well, there's been a surprise twist in a high-profile murder trial in Saskatoon. Greg Furtuck is accused of killing his wife, Sherry, who disappeared six years ago. The case has centered around a Mr. Big sting operation. Today in court, though, the defense got up and accused the Crown of prosecutorial misconduct. CBC's Dan Zakreski is covering the trial, and he joins me now live from Saskatoon. So, Dan, what happened this morning? Well, Tori, this all played out when the, the defence was wrapped Because our colleague Dan Zakreski has been a crime reporter for so long, he has a pretty good radar from when something big is happening in the courtroom. But when Greg's lawyer jumps out of his seat, even Dan isn't sure what to make of it. Okay, um, I got my voice memo going. He tells me about it on the phone after. We're sort of watching it. The reporters were watching it. And we don't, I think, appreciate how serious this is. The twist happens on the third day of testimony from the crime boss. One of Greg's lawyers accuses prosecutor Corey Bliss of breaking the rules. And then Mike Nolan stands up and goes, uh, you know, I sort of find it passing strange here that uh, uh, this guy, uh, Mr. Big, uh, just suddenly answered so quickly and categorically today when he didn't yesterday. Uh, And in fact, uh, uh, I think uh, he might have talked to the Crown. And, it's, and, and everybody kind of goes, whoa, 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 like, what are you saying? Mike says he saw Corey talk to the undercover crime boss outside the courtroom after his second day of testimony. This causes a big courtroom drama because it's a serious accusation. 
Witnesses are not allowed to talk to anyone about the case, not after the defence has started questioning them. Justice Daniluk in particular uh, goes, uh, look, uh, you know, what you're saying here is, is pretty serious. So I think the expression was, uh, he said, don't sidle up next to it. He says, if you have something to say, say it. Uh, it sounds like you're alleging prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, and uh, Nolan goes, in fact, I am. Justice Daniluk is angry. He cautions Mike about what happens if he pursues the allegation against Corey. The first thing that happens is you are off this trial. Uh, you cannot be a witness uh, and a lawyer in the same trial. So this means your, your co-chair, Mr. Bodner, is going to be riding the rest of this thing on his own. And there's going to be affidavits and it's going to be messy and it's going to be public. You know, you should think long and careful here. Uh, you have to appreciate that up, up till this point, the prosecutor, Corey Bliss, and Mike Nolan, the defense lawyer, do not like each other. Uh, we're into like week six of the trial at this point, week six or seven. And there have been numerous admonishments from the bench, uh, from Justice Daniluk. Uh, to these uh, two individuals. And then he always uses hockey metaphors, uh, saying, uh, look, uh, you know, uh, you guys are playing with your elbows up here. And I understand that uh, litigation is very serious, but I also expect a certain level of civility and cooperation amongst counsel. In the end, Mike withdraws the accusation against Corey, but not until after a lengthy and stern telling off from the judge. It's time we talked about the judge in this case. Justice Richard Daniluk is known for those clever hockey references, and his written decisions have a certain literary flair. Dan has watched Justice Daniluk preside over many cases. He's, he's very polite, very fair, uh, isn't going to rush things, will always explain things when he makes decisions or when he has issues. There's a, a humanity to his rulings and an understanding of, of loss that comes through in the language and his perceptions. Justice Staniluk lost his 30-year-old daughter in 2020. After she died, he wrote an article for the Globe and Mail newspaper about his grief and how his daughter's troubled rescue dog had helped him to find joy again. It's a touching story. When he talks to uh, victims, families, and he talks about the, their tremendous loss and how important it is for them to be heard. You cannot hear that and, and not know that he's talking a little bit about himself. Uh, so it gives him a, a tremendous legitimate sense of empathy, I think. Sherry's sisters say they like Justice Daniluk. I don't know, he seems pretty laid back. Um, but, but he's listening, he's paying attention for sure. Um, he tells you what he's thinking, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> like, like he's, he's very, like he's I, 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 I guess, calls a spade a spade yeah. in some situations, right? Yeah. Like he, he doesn't really beat around the bush, he just gets to the point of things. Justice Daniluk has ruled on Mr Big cases before. He's allowed evidence from these operations, twice since the Hart decision we mentioned earlier. In one written decision... He said that allowing the confession doesn't mean it's accepted as fact, only that it should be considered. 
In the hotel room, Greg draws four maps for the crime boss. They show the location of Sherry's body and the gun. The boss keeps saying Greg must find the evidence before the police do, and orders Greg's colleagues to help search, including the cleanup guy. First, Greg takes them right to the spot where those two shell casings were found at the pit. He notices the pit has changed a lot since 2015, and the officers tell him this is a really good thing because there's likely no trace left of the crime. Then they go looking for Sherry's remains. They comb through sections of rural land, searching for a clump of poplar trees. It's wet and muddy and nothing turns up. So the next day, they go out again, this time with rakes and quads, but still nothing. As they're searching, they answer phone calls from the crime boss, checking in on their progress. So the officers keep pushing Greg. Is he sure they're looking in the right area? Greg is pretty confident this is right. But they don't find black plastic, and they don't find bones. At one point, Greg speculates that the coyotes got her. On the third day, the group goes out again, but this time in a different direction, looking for the gun, even though Greg is certain they won't find it. And they don't. So the police don't find any physical evidence to back up Greg's story to the crime boss. Despite that, the call is made. It's time to arrest Greg and charge him with murder. Well, behind the vehicle, it's called UC operator, trying to find it here. It's got Greg, Greg uh, Furtuck in it. You will be subject to audio and video recording at all times while in police custody, except during communication with your legal counsel, and that's your lawyer. Do you understand? Yes, could you please loosen these handcuffs? Greg Furtuck, you are under arrest I for the murder of Sherry Furtuck, contrary to Section 235, Sub 1 of the Criminal Code, and offering an indignity to a human body, contrary to Section 182B of the Criminal Code. Do you understand? I understand what you charged me with, but I didn't know. So tell me what this means to you. I'm under arrest. Okay. If you want to call a lawyer or a free legal advice service, we will provide you with a telephone and you can call a toll-free number for immediate legal advice. Okay. If yes. Can we go to the station so I can be let Tell me what this means to you. It means that this is a bunch of bullshit because uh, I haven't done anything. Okay. You've been arrested for murder contrary to 235 sub I didn't murder code, anybody. So and offering an indignity to a human body contrary to section 182 sub B. I want to see a lawyer. That's what I want. Okay. So, if any officer has said anything to you previously that you took as a promise or a threat, you are to ignore that. You don't have to say anything else. Do you understand? I understand that. Can we go now, please? Before I pee my pants. I don't know why you're doing this to me. Let's just get going. I'll talk to my lawyer. So, I don't you... want to talk to you no more. Okay. Last I'm not thing. in a word. So you understand that you don't have to say anything? No, I'm not saying a word. Okay. Let's roll. Since that day, in 2019, Greg has been in jail, waiting to fight these charges in court. At the trial, close to 50 people testify against Greg including his girlfriend. Hey, Doris. Good morning. Good luck today. Oh, who is that? 
Doris LaRock doesn't want to speak with the media. <laughs> Inside, the court gives her permission to testify by video from a separate room. She's almost 77 years old. Doris tells the court she might have early-onset dementia, that she can't remember what she told police early on, or what Greg was doing the day Sherry disappeared. But she does remember he had a stomachache then, and she remembers what happened that night. Doris says she was in bed and Greg came home really drunk and said that he shot Sherry at the gravel pit. Doris says Greg told her that if she told anyone, she'd be next. Doris didn't tell the police about what Greg said that night until 2020. Up until then, Doris told police she knew nothing of Greg's alleged involvement. The Crown asked her why she changed her story, and she says because it was the truth, I guess. Later in the trial, we also hear about the unsuccessful searches for Sherry. One of the undercover officers says some of the spots they searched seemed burned. Prairie farmers are known for burning their trees to make way for crops. And police say they've worked other cases too where they don't find remains. Weather and time are major factors. After eight weeks, the Crown closes its case. Then the defense calls one witness, a woman who knew Sherry and lives by the gravel pit. She saw Sherry's truck on the road by the pit after five o'clock at night on December 7th, 2015. She thinks she saw the truck for about a second, but she insists that it was Sherry's semi. By the Crown's theory, Sherry was already dead at this time. Morris still suggests Sherry could be alive. If I was in her boots, and if I wanted to get hold of Greg, or get rid of Greg Furtuck, I would have staged it as well. If it's staged, I don't know if it is, because it's not hard to lose yourself in this country. Very easy. You can go to BC, go to Ontario, go to the Maritimes, and just sit back and enjoy life. While Greg's lawyer is suggesting Sherry is still alive, Sherry's sisters know she's gone, and they're hopeful that they can find her remains. Tika White hasn't given up. I need to go back again. <laughs> Just because there's um, some spots that, that were kind of made of importance that, um, that maybe yeah, haven't been searched. I need to do it and go and see just for myself. And I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I guess give myself some peace of mind, knowing that could it could it possibly be a place? Um, no, I will definitely try and get back. It's sad that she we haven't found her. That would be oh a blessing if that could come about. Nobody deserves. To this to, hap to happen to them, it's it's senseless. Sherry was a good person, a good mom, a good grandmother. She was a hard worker. Like all of this, what over money?
Tika and Michelle want the judge to find Greg guilty. I mean, I don't know how there couldn't be just with the evidence. I just, but I guess, um, like we've said, they only have to prove reasonable doubt, I guess, that he didn't. But it's to me, it's so obvious. And uh, yeah, he needs to, he needs to be convicted and, and spend the rest of his life in prison. Whether or not that happens is up to Justice Stanlock. He will have to weigh all of the testimony and consider Greg's statements, including the big one, the crime boss confession. Justice Stanlock says he'll probably watch that video recording 30 to 50 times, and his decision on what evidence is admissible will be more than 100 pages. If he allows the Crown's evidence, the trial carries on, and the defence could call more witnesses. If he rejects it, the Crown will have to decide if their case against Greg is strong enough without the confession. We'll know more when we bring you the next episode of The Pit. The Pit is a CBC investigative podcast. This episode was co-written and produced by Kendall Latimer and me, Alicia Bridges. Our senior producer is Corrine Larson. We mix this episode together. Editorial guidance came from Paul Dornstarter and David Hutton. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or just tell your friends. And please follow The Pit to get alerts when new episodes are released. You can also contact us directly by emailing thepit at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.